Hello and welcome to another episode of Green Minds. This week I had the privilege of sitting down with Mike Wilkins to chat about his career and the nexus of sustainability and capital markets. He's had an incredible career to date from journalism to then becoming a credit analyst at S&P Global to now becoming the executive director at Imperial Centre for Climate Finance and Investment, CCFI. He spent the last 30 years working within the capital markets with the latter 15 or so focusing on sustainability within the space. So it was really insightful to chat through where capital markets need to evolve towards to facilitate a greener future. One of the things that really struck me was his cautious belief in capital markets and private capital in being able to rise to the role of stewards of the planet. So without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, So you have spent the last 30 years within the capital market space, first as a credit analyst and then more recently as global head of sustainable finance at S&P Global. And then now as executive director of Imperial's um, Centre for Climate Finance and Investment. So for anyone who doesn't know, sits at the intersection of capital markets and academia and really serves to guide financial practitioners in unlocking their potential to drive solutions to climate change. I really want to dive into your work at CFI, CCFI. Um, sorry, so many acronyms. Right. <laughs> um, but I want to start kind of at the beginning of your journey. What was your climate aha moment? And what was the impetus be- behind dedicating much of your career to the nexus of finance and climate change? Yeah, thank you for that question, Sean. I think, um, you know, it's important to realise that I've come to the world of climate change and environmental risk analysis, um, you know, over sort of a period of, I say, 10 to 15 years, it's been a gradual evolution. So to say when was the aha moment, you know, um, it's quite hard to pinpoint, but uh, I'll try. But before I, before I do that, let me just give you a bit of background on, on my uh, my career. As you said, I, I've spent nearly three decades working in, in finance in the city, uh, the majority of that for S&P Global Ratings. Uh, which is one of the world's uh, leading credit rating agency. And uh, I started off my career there uh, as a credit analyst, uh, having been a journalist for about three or four years prior to that after graduating uh, in modern languages from Bristol University. So I started my career in journalism, and increasingly while I was being a journalist, I I gravitated towards business and finance uh, as a topic of interest. Uh, so that led me to becoming a financial analyst on the credit side, uh, sort of to further develop my skills and uh, deeper analysis of, of companies. Uh, I also did an MBA shortly after joining S&P because I felt I needed to um, make sure I understood the world of business and finance a lot better than just being a linguist and a journalist. Um, but then when I joined S&P, uh, I basically covered uh, infrastructure as a sector. So um, utilities, you know, oil, gas, water companies, um, transportation, uh, also did quite a lot of work in the public sector, sort of looking at universities, local governments, but mainly infrastructure. 
And I was initially hired because of my knowledge of privatization of uh, utilities. I was, you know, go back some time now uh, to the sort of uh, late 80s, early 90s. That's a time when water companies and electricity companies in the UK were being privatized. And uh, there was a lot of interest in the city about how these companies would perform, you know, their dividend yields, you know, the amount of debt they were raising, you know, their credit quality, etc. So, uh, but the main thing that people were focused on was regulation, uh, because uh, utility companies are monopolies, uh, natural monopolies, and uh, they have to be regulated. Economic regulation was imposed on water, electricity, gas, uh, telecoms, all, all, all the utility sectors, and airports for that matter. Uh, and so understanding regulation was a prime issue. So that, and that, was a, that was the reason I was brought in, because I worked within the UK uh, Water Services Association, which um, basically was a trade body that represented the UK water and sewerage companies. And as such, I understood regulation from that job. Uh, so I basically edited their magazine there. So my knowledge of regulation uh, for privatised utilities is what got me into financial analysis in the first place. So just uh, put that into perspective. And then when I started working at S&P, I, I covered the utilities. I, I started working on project finance. But going back to utilities, what going back to the original question of when was my aha moment, it was really around 2000, you know, actually, yeah, about 2005, um, and that was the year that the European Emissions Trading Scheme started. And um, it became apparently clear to, to me and to some of my utility analyst colleagues that the large European utilities like RWE, um, you know, E.ON, all these like very fossil fuel intensive companies were basically, you know, very exposed uh, if the carbon price and this is a big if, if the carbon price were to increase. And we started doing calculations, you know, as credit analysts in terms of future projections of the carbon price and how that would be um, affecting the cash flows, the profitability uh, of these companies. And it became clear to us that this was a big issue. So that was my aha moment. And when we realized that carbon exposure for big corporations in fossil fuel intensive sectors was a big credit exposure potentially. So we started doing work around, you know, what the climate science, how that was uh, being translated into policy, how policy was evolving, how that would be translated into corporate action, how corporates would react to that. Uh, and, you know, this is going back to 2005, before a lot of the current work that uh, exists now. And then that then got published as research. Um, it became read by, you know, credit analysts, uh, S&P started to sort of take a bigger interest in this as an issue. And then uh, ultimately, after I did a sabbatical for about a year, so I went sailing around the world for a year, came back, and I was given a new job. So no longer was I heading up the infrastructure team as I had been then. I was asked to look into the carbon markets uh, as a potential business line for S&P Global. Uh, so I did a course at, uh, on carbon analytics and finance at the London Business School. Uh, and that got me more and more interested in the topic of carbon trading and emission trading schemes. Uh, I took that knowledge to uh, then further my uh, knowledge around environmental risk. Uh, and then as the years progressed, it became more and more apparent that this was a big, big issue for corporations. Uh, and I suppose the next big moment was 2015, which is when the Paris Agreement was uh, was signed. 
uh, well, it was agreed, it was signed later, but um, the Paris Agreement uh, in COP21, which is the big pivotal point, I think, for not just for me, but for many involved in the climate finance space. And from then on, you know, things just mushroomed. Um, I grew the sustainable finance team at S&P from two or three people to where I left it was 60 people uh, focused on climate finance and sustainable finance at S&P when I left at the end of last year. That's incredible. That's <laughs> a very rich, um, yeah, a very rich 30 years and really interesting to understand how, yeah, your history and your past in not the financial sector has kind of shaped and, and made you a better financial analyst. Given your depth of of understanding of the space, what do you think is one of the main misconceptions people have surrounding capital markets and climate change? I think um, the role of a capital markets is not well understood. Um, When people think about responsible investments and, uh, you know, uh, ESG and sustainability, they, they tend to forget that a lot of this is down to where capital is allocated uh, in terms of pension funds and asset managers uh, on the institutional scale, not the small scale, but the institutional scale. And a lot of that is driven by capital markets. Um, and just to sort of quote a figure, you know, in terms of the amount of total fixed income, uh, which is, you know, exists currently, is around $100 trillion, you know, $100 trillion of fixed income assets exist uh, and you know it's a huge market <clears throat> and, and <clears throat> at the moment you know only a small sliver of that is is dedicated towards uh, labeled climate investments or green investments uh, through instruments such as green bonds and sustainability bonds and so on but even though it's it's a small sliver it's around five percent now um, if you go back just five years ago it was probably 0.5 percent so the the, the 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 rise has been more than exponential has been hyper exponential uh, over the past five years um, or so, basically since Paris. And, you know, that has been driven by the capital markets. Uh, and, you know, what drives the capital markets? Well, essentially investment um, demand, investors themselves. So investors have realized that, you know, investing their money in uh, climate um, beneficial um, assets uh, and moving, reallocating capital away from polluting and environmental detrimental assets is not only important from a sort of moral perspective, if you're into sustainability, but also from a, a business perspective. Uh, and that's because it, a lot of the fixed income, the debt markets, essentially, it's all about risk. It's managing risk and avoiding risk rather than looking for returns. Uh, the two go hand in hand, uh, but really it's about managing the downside. So as a credit analyst, you learn that straight away. Um, you basically try to manage the downside. So the downsides of of having um, heavy exposure to uh, assets which are either carbon intensive or are environmentally damaging is 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 significant. And that realization by by the capital markets has led to a massive reallocation of capital, which is continuing to this very day, and will continue. Uh, you know, as years go by, as we go towards net zero targets and so on. So the capital market's role in that transition, and the transition word comes up a lot, uh, in that transition is pivotal. Do you think, just jumping on this um, idea of green bonds, do you think and the exponential growth in investors investing in green labelled bonds, do you think there's almost a rate limiting factor in that growth because there aren't enough 
fixed income projects that are green to necessarily yep. invest in? And do you see that as a problem in the coming years? Yes and yes. Um, there is a limitation. There's a finite level of, of, of green assets available out there. And that's leading to what we've seen so far in terms of pricing. So people talk a lot about the greenium on green bonds. As you may have heard of that expression. Uh, basically, the extra um, yield that uh, investors are willing to forgive or what they're prepared to pay to have a green asset. Um, and that has been around for some time, although there's some people who say it doesn't exist, but it does exist. Uh, and we've done enough uh, research to show it does. Uh, and the reason why it exists, more than any other reason, is because of uh, de demand supply imbalance. Uh, there's more demand for green assets than there is supply. And that's been the case for several years. In fact, it's just getting worse. Um, and as a result, you know, there's a this premium that's paid for any green assets, which it's not a bad thing per se, uh, because it basically incentivizes companies to go down the green finance route. If they if they feel they can lower their cost of capital by having green assets and investing in a green way, then they will move in that direction, which is a great price signal for them uh, as uh, as debt issuers. Uh, for investors, they will forgive or, or, or forgo yield uh, as a result of that, which may be a detriment to them investing or a counter incentive but at the same time they have other benefits for example green assets are shown to be less volatile uh they, they protect yourself against uh, big shocks you know we're about to go through a big shock now with what's happening with russia ukraine mm -hmm. so let's see what happens to green assets in this circumstance because i think it's going to be a testing times uh but going back to your point about um you know finite uh, availability yes that's a big problem um, but the other issue to bear in mind is there's a difference between what's labelled green and what is green, <laughs> OK? So, yes, there's, I don't know, $1.5 trillion uh, worth of green labelled bonds uh, and debt out there at the moment, somewhere around that, $1.5 trillion. And there's, I don't know, $30, $40 trillion of infrastructure assets out there which are not labelled green. But if you were to go through all those infrastructure assets uh, and started doing an exercise of seeing whether they were environmental beneficial or not, or whether they contributed towards re reducing emissions or contributed towards uh, net zero uh, or carbon neutrality, you'd probably find that a lot of them do, but it's not captured in the label. So going back to when we launched um, a product in S&P called the Green Evaluation, which was all about trying to score green bonds according to the environmental benefit they provided we made a point of saying this is not all about labeling because if you just focus on the label you're missing the point you're, you're trying to capture impact and environmental benefit and there's a lot of assets out there which are providing environmental benefit but nobody knows that so they're not labeled as such so that cost of capital advantage is not being picked up Mm -hmm. Do you think that that will change with all of these frameworks coming into being? Um, that yeah. yeah, that people will be increasingly labelling their products better. Yeah, I mean the incentives are there. If if, yeah. if as a, a developer, as a project sponsor, or as a corporation, you can pick up, you know, five to ten basis points advantage by labelling your debt green, you're going to mm -hmm. go down that route, aren't you? It's it's a no-brainer, really. Um, so it's, it's a question of time, really. So if you're XYZ utility and you say, OK, I've got all these wind farms, I've got these solar projects, I haven't issued a green bond yet, but I certainly can because all I need to do is just collect them together, put them into a structure, label it green and sell it at a, at a nice uh, discount for me or premium for the investor.
It's mm-hmm. going to happen. But even that's finite, though. There's only so many companies that can do that. Yeah, for sure. So jumping on to one of my favorite topics, um, mm. climate finance and risk. So your job at CCFI centers around sitting between academics and practitioners and creating interdisciplinary research within the realm of climate finance. And so I realized from chatting to people outside of our ESG bubble that climate finance is a deceptively simple term, but not so many people understand what it actually entails. Mm -hmm. So could you just kind of give us a neat, succinct definition? Yeah, I mean, climate finance is essentially any any form of finance which has a um, a benefit for for you know tackling cl- climate change. <laughs> um, so as simple as that, really. Yeah. So it could be uh, something which produces uh, you know or, or lends itself to uh, investing in clean energy or, or, or renewable energy solutions uh, or other forms of of technology which help uh, reduce pollutants, not just uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So anything that's beneficial for the climate or other f- forms of finance which um, help uh, increase the resilience of society and its infrastructure to the physical impacts of climate change. So there's, there's two sides to the coin. There's the, uh, the mitigation of climate change through reducing emissions and other forms of technologies. Uh, but there's also um, acknowledging, as we have to, that uh, climate change is happening already. Uh, it's, it's going to get worse, so we need to um, invest in making the world more resilient. Uh, otherwise, you know, we're going to suffer more uh, damages, losses, and uh, and eventually sort of um, destruction of of, um, of humanity. So it, there's that's two sides of the coin there. And so you you touched on this previously, this idea that a lot of climate finance is actually mitigating downside risk. Mm-hmm versus necessarily focusing on return, although they're both connected. And I know I I read this interesting um, bit of research that came out of TrueCost that found that two-thirds of global companies have at least one asset that is highly exposed to physical impacts if you look at the most severe climate scenarios, Mm -hmm. which, granted, maybe we're not going to reach the most severe climate scenarios, but that's still quite serious from a financial standpoint. And I know that CCFI have developed this really interesting um, climate risk taxonomy, which is the first of its kind, and, yeah, just seeks to help guide practitioners in understanding climate risk. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk to us about the main impetus behind creating that and also how that looks to serve banks and investors and sure. regulators. Yeah, sure. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, this has been a big project for us at the CCFI uh, for you know well over a year now. Uh, and um, we released that only recently in the past few days. Uh, it is it's, uh, quite a seminal piece of work, sort of nearly 100 pages uh, and it's essentially, we call it a taxonomy, um, but the other way of looking at it is it's a field guide or reference guide for investors, uh, lenders, analysts, and, and regulators. And what we try to do um, in, this, um, in this guide is to sort of list all the climate-related risks which we felt would impact or could impact a firm, a company. Uh, as, and that would then allow... Um, companies and the, the people who analyze companies as well to model and analyze these risks in a more quantitative way 
uh, and in a more holistic way. So, you know, we've heard a lot uh, over the past couple of years or more about the taxonomy from the European Union, which uh, makes a credible attempt to define what is uh, environmentally, um, you know, beneficial or not, as the case may be, uh, which is good. It's a bit binary. You're either in or you're out. But it doesn't really make any attempt to say what actually would that lead to in terms of risk for companies. Uh, so we're taking it to a different level with the climate risk taxonomy. We're taking it to the financial risk, financial risk for a company, and also trying to encapsulate the whole range of different risks. So we bring into account, for example, um, not just the ones that you typically see around um, uh, you know, physical risks, around um, you know, transition risks, we look at adaptation and mitigation in both senses, uh, but we also try to bring into the um, range of risks identified uh, natural capital risks. So if you're destroying nature, uh, that's going to have an impact on you financially as well. But it's very hard to sort of define where those interactions between natural capital loss and financial repercussions actually uh, start to have a material impact. So that's another thing we've tried to define. So that's that's the the purpose of a taxonomy, really, to try and provide that reference guide on the firm level climate risks to allow companies to be analysed from that perspective. You mentioned um, the EU taxonomy, and mm. actually, my last podcast recording was with Andreas Hopner, mm -hmm. who was kind of quite instrumental in building the Paris Line benchmark and also doing a lot of yeah building of the EU taxonomy. Um, and I know from working with him and chatting to him that companies and lawyers and just the whole, yeah, just all financial practitioners and people who work with them are quite confused by the complexity of the taxonomy and also how they be even begin to gather data to understand where their activities fit in the binary green-brown um, taxonomy. And I saw from the um, the taxonomy that you guys have created that one of the pillars is this idea of natural capital risk. And that's kind of associated with biodiversity loss. But how easily do you think it is for practitioners to even begin to determine their biodiversity risk mm -hmm. at a portfolio level and even at a firm level, given that, A, we don't even fully understand how our reliance on the natural ecosystem and, B, ESG data, I believe, is not fully there mm -hmm. to even help to facilitate that understanding. Yeah. No, I think this is a major challenge, but it's one that's being tackled at the moment. I think uh, um, you know, there's significant progress being made to try and help uh, identify risks related to natural capital depletion and nature loss. Uh, including here at, at Imperial. And so we're working very closely with the Grantham Institute and colleagues like uh, Dr. Alex Coberly and others uh, on, on this topic. And we've done quite a bit of research around, you know, um, losses to agriculture through climate and the nexus between climate change and, and nature depletion uh, and how that then in interfaces with, uh, with the world of finance through trying to solve that issue through natural capital solutions, sorry, nature-based solutions. So um, if you're interested in that area, you know, l last uh, December, we, we put out a report called The Future of Food Part 2, which I think uh, shows you the type of work that can be done to try and be more prescriptive in this area. But 
going away from what we're doing here at Imperial to the broader context, um, you probably heard of the establishment of a task force for nature-related financial disclosure, uh, and that's now you know fully underway uh, as a, a major initiative to help um, define and bring to the fore uh, the relevant financial disclosures to identify natural capital risk for companies. And if the success uh, of the TCFD is anything to go by, I think we have some grounds for optimism there. I've been involved as a member of the TCFD for about five years, uh, and I know that that started off from a very challenging position and then grew and grew and grew to the point where it's now becoming mandatory in many jurisdictions for companies to disclose their climate-related risks in their mainstream filings, which is a major um, significant step forward uh, in helping investors and other financial analysts uh, to identify where they should be looking and how they should be quantifying these risks uh, from the investment uh, and lending perspective. And the same goes for nature. So if a TNFD can do something similar, can not just uh, define what these nature-related risks are and how they interface with financial risks, which is what we try to do in our taxonomy as well, but then it lead to uh, very clearly stating some, some standardised disclosure requirements which will help analysts to, um, calculate where nature loss actually leads to financial loss and vice versa. Uh, and when I say vice versa deliberately, because one of the research projects that we've just started together with the Grantham is around the whole concept of net zero nature positive uh, and identifying scenarios where you can actually go towards net zero. In, and that's now become a sort of de facto target for many uh, sectors and companies, which, you know, it's a double edged sword in many respects. Uh, but at the same time, looking to do that without having a detrimental effect on nature. In fact, you want to have a positive impact on nature. Uh, and that's a really important research stream to focus on. So as we're trying to protect um, the world against climate change, we should also at the same time try to protect nature and ensure that the two go hand in hand. Uh, and that requires some very detailed and applicable research and also that finance should be directed in the right direction to make sure that it's channeled to achieve that target of being net zero and also nature positive. Mm, yeah, yeah, I really I'm very excited about how finance is moving to this idea of long termism with respect to ESG and sustainable investing. I it's yeah it makes me happy that that we're actually thinking about this not in the like near term future but also in the long term future and the implications that we have yeah i mean just one word on that because this debate about long term short term mm. has two sides to it um yes we need to look long term because otherwise you miss those sort of uh you know far off moments which can't be which are not being priced in now sort of a so-called tragedy of horizons, which Mark Carney always alluded to. But at the same time, we have to recognise that physical climate risk is happening now. <laughs> uh, the damages are being suffered now and action needs to be taken now. So when, when uh, companies start to look and countries start to look at their net zero transition plans, uh, you know, 15, 20 years forward, that is not enough. It needs to be more... Sh you know, towards what's going to happen over the next five years. Because if you don't get on the right pathway over the next five years, you're going to miss your targets in 15, 20, 30 years' time. So that the, the, the interaction between the short term and the long term 
often gets overlooked. Uh, so it's not sure we shouldn't just be focused on the long term to the exclusion of a short term. It should be on both. Yeah, and we shouldn't use the long term and yeah. our focus on that as a yeah way of not doing anything today. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you kind of touched on this idea of nature based solutions mm. as another tool within the climate finance toolkit and also at least I feel, uh, a favourite buzzword in finance spaces at the minute. Um, And it's not really a space that I know too much about beyond the mangroves Mm. and planting trees aspect of it. So could you kind of explain what nature-based solutions are and why they matter? Well, they matter for a number of reasons. I suppose the most fundamental reasons because we need to um, tackle natural capital depletion and nature loss and destruction of ecosystems. So that's the top reason. But at the same time, within the context of, of meeting um, net zero targets uh, and achieving the aims of the Paris Agreement, etc., and all those good things, um, that can only be achieved through uh, making sure that we also stop emissions and also create emission sinks and try and, and extract um, emissions, greenhouse gas emissions from the atmosphere. And that's where nature plays such a such a big role. And I know most people understand the concept about the destruction of the uh, rainforest leading to, you know, the loss of carbon sinks, which is in itself um, detrimental because you're not going to be absorbing enough uh, emissions to offset what you what's already been put into the atmosphere. And that concept of offsetting is what really nature-based solutions is about. So if, if you think about nature-based solutions as a form of offset, uh, that gets you part of the way there. So um, for, you know, the offsets market is growing tremendously. Um, you know, a way that companies can try and um, uh, counteract the negative impacts they're having by trying to invest in some positive impacts. That basically leads to the question which comes up time and time again around the integrity of offsets. Uh, and that's not gone away at all. Um, and it's a big area of research uh, for us and for the Grantham Institute, who we work with closely. So the integrity of offsets, it all relates around, are you achieving true uh, carbon sequestration by the project, whether it's um, avoided deforestation or um, you know, change in land use, uh, by using degraded land, whatever the project may be, and there's, there's thousands of different types of nature-based solutions, you know, not just stopping cutting down trees, there's lots of other things. Uh, are you actually achieving that aim of, of actually uh, absorbing uh, CO2, uh, or are you overstating it and potentially creating other damage and in doing what you're doing? And that's, again, going back to the paper I mentioned earlier about the future of food, that's touched upon in there, because... It's only the nature-based solutions with true co-benefits that are the ones that are really uh, credible. And if they're credible and they're creating an environmental benefit in every sense, uh, then they should command higher pricing because they are of higher quality. So the quality of offsets is very important. And that's a huge area of, of misunderstanding or lack of understanding, which I think uh, requires research. So we're, we're very much involved in that space as well. But it's, it's so important because the only way that net zero can be achieved is by having a credible offset market. Um, you know, and that's looking on the positive light has been helped by the approval of Article 6 of the Paris Agreement last year 
at COP26 in Glasgow. So we we have the necessary rule book now uh, and and the framework to do this. It's now making sure that you know, everything is, is is done in a proper way. There are credible guidelines and that uh, offsets are put together and scrutinised for their integrity as well as, you know, obviously the quantity required. Yeah, and to touch on this um, quantity required, I think it seems as though both the private and the public sector are increasingly needed to facilitate this like mm. massive push into increasing the, the quantity of nature-based solutions. And I wonder... What role do you believe private capital plays in facilitating the expansion of that? And are you hopeful that private capital can rise to the role of being a good steward of the planet when they haven't before? Well, that's a very good question. Um, and I think, you know, speaking personally, I think left to its own devices, no. <laughs> um, I think there's a need for regulation um, and there's a need for principles and standards to help guide the investment community. Um, so raw capitalism by itself, I think if left unchecked, probably will meander in the wrong direction um, from previous experience. Um, just human nature, I'm afraid. Uh, but, <clears throat> and this is an important but, if, if properly guided and the proper guardrails are put in place, uh, proper regulation and oversight, not excessive, <laughs> because that would, you know, basically kill it off before it's born. But with proper guardrails and regulation in place, I think it can be the major private sector solution to you know, many of the problems caused by climate change and natural capital depletion. But it, it can't be left to its own devices. Do you think then in terms of nature-based solutions specifically, there needs to be a global framework to ensure that A, quality and B, quantity is pushed forward? Or do you think that that would take too long and, and yeah? Just be yeah, my, <clears throat> my experience on that is that, you know, it takes far too long uh, mm -hmm. to, if you do it sort of country by country and hopefully eventually link up. Uh, I've seen that through the um, carbon trading side of things, where you know emissions trading scheme in in Europe started in 2005, um, you know, built up to be a pretty major um, and successful uh, overall uh, trading scheme for carbon, and then there were sort of others established in the west coast of the US and uh, you know in Canada and uh, you know other parts of the world and where. They were the original expectation was that they would link up uh, and form one global um, carbon trading scheme to you know basically efficiently send us incentives to reduce emissions, but that never really worked. It hasn't worked to date, uh, and I suppose what you do need is sort of multilateral um, coordination, such as through the UNFCCC and Article Six to achieve that aim. So I think to answer your question, yes, I think you do need global global standards. Uh, and they, they need to be uh, implemented in a, a relatively um, short time frame because otherwise these things can go on forever and ever. Uh, but again, being optimistic, um, you know, we've seen what's happened with the, um, the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, which was only really 
um, proposed a couple of years ago, around 2019, something like that, uh, by the IFRS. Um, this is, you know, the International Foundation for Reporting Standards. Uh, and now it's basically been launched. It was launched in Glasgow last year and now moving forward to trying to set global standards for sustainability reporting albeit controversial, um, uh, but I won't go into that debate, so we'll be here all day. But <laughs> nonetheless, I think there is progress being made in this, in this direction. And so you kind of touched on the fact that the markets left to their own devices will not mm. um, bring about a sustainable green world. And, you know, we're, yeah. we're an imperial podcast, we're, we're sat at imperial. Mm. What do you think academics, institutions what do you think our role as academic institutions is in facilitating that journey i think you know we need to marry the academic expertise the deep academic expertise we have at imperial especially in in science engineering uh, technology um and, and you know and other areas such as public health and medicine bring it all together uh to show how the impacts of finance actually need that clear science-based linkage. So you've probably heard of a science-based targets initiative, and and that's made a huge difference in trying to sort of restore uh, credibility towards the sort of net zero targets that have been implemented. Uh, and, you know, I see that as being absolutely essential. So an academic institution like Imperial can actually add credibility to achieving climate change goals uh, and also achieving those goals through private finance. So that's how I see it. That's very hopeful. Um, so to kind of conclude mm -hmm. on perhaps easier questions, um, I like to ask guests what kind of books they're reading and what books they would recommend because mm -hmm. a lot of the people listening are starting their sustainability journey and about to step into their first careers. And so we're kind of consuming mm. knowledge and information at breakneck speed. So, yeah, sure. what, what book would you recommend? Right. Well, one which I read recently, um, which I think is a good sort of easy read, um, is uh, a book called Investing to Save the Planet by Alice Ross. So Alice Ross is um, uh, a deputy editor at the Financial Times, and uh, she's been uh, instrumental in trying to um, decipher uh, responsible investment and climate investment for sort of the layperson and, and explain it in simple, understandable, without being condescending, but simple terms. Uh, and I think she's achieved that in her book, uh, Investing to Save a Planet, which was launched only about a year ago. Uh, and actually, um, last year, I asked uh, Alice to do a presentation uh, on her book to um, a local uh, group uh, where I live, and uh, it went down really well. So she's not only is she a good author, she's a very good speaker. So maybe somebody for your next podcast yeah. for Alice Taking Ross. <laughs> uh, another book which I would recommend, but mainly because one of the chapters is written by me, is um, Stranded Assets and the Environment, which was edited by Ben Caldicott at Oxford um, from the Sustainable Finance Group. Uh, that was published about two or three years ago, and it's basically a, a compendium or compilation of um, chapters around the issues around stranded assets. So uh, I'm sure you've come across that term. So that's another good book published by Routledge in 2018, I think it was, Stranded Assets and the Environment. But moving away from the sort of obvious, the book I'm reading at the moment is called The Power of Geography um, by Tim Marshall, uh, which is all around uh, geopolitics. And, uh, and many of you probably have uh, read The uh, Prisoners of Geography by the same author. And I think 
where we are at the moment, where we're seeing the uh, tensions between Russia and Ukraine uh, escalate uh, um, you know, to a dangerous degree, understanding geopolitics and what causes tension and what way things are moving is also important when you start to uh, truly understand solutions to climate change. Because you know, the reason why we haven't progressed even further through the UNFCCC is because of geopolitical issues. Uh, and so w without, un without having a good understanding of geopolitics, uh, then I think uh, trying to understand why we haven't made more progress in cl solving climate issues is very difficult. Yeah, thank you for, for um, bringing us back to that social aspect, because yep. you're right. Yeah, I think a lot of times because we're so focused on mitigation mainly, because it's such an important journey for the next 30 years, we tend to forget that A, co-benefits are absolutely necessary and in understanding that co-benefits are absolutely necessary that we need to understand social and political forces and how they shape the world. So my final question is, do you have any words of wisdom for us as we step into our own climate journeys? I would say keep the passion up you know i think um i've met many of the um the students here at the Imperial college business school and especially on the ccmf program and i see a, an intense passion and real um determination to make a difference uh and i think that is so important when i was hiring people to join my uh, team at smp global uh, i you know i looked at academic qualifications i looked at experience but one of the main determinants of whether I heard somebody or not was that they truly had a passion for sustainability. Uh, and, you know, it really meant something to them personally. Uh, so I think that's a really important thing. So, yes, get your master's degree. Yes, you know, get your work experience and, and do your internships and so on. But, you know, make sure that you truly, truly are interested and have a passion in this topic. And that will sort of propel you forward more than anything else. Do you have any tips on that? Because I know that you, as you kind of hinted, you're um, part of a sustainability group in St Albans. That's right. Yeah. Do you do you have any tips on how we can maintain the passion? Well, I think, uh, you know, doing things like this is important. You know, it's not just sort of putting your heads in textbooks and, and, and uh, doing coursework and exams. It's also doing all the other stuff, mm -hmm. um, you know, meeting, networking with people, um, understanding what's happening in the real world uh, and not just in, in, in terms of what's happening in academia uh, and also just following the, the real-time debates that's happening. I mean, there's so much information going on. Uh, I, I'm bombarded with news uh, of the, you know, the climate finance and sustainable finance world, uh, um, but it's, it's fascinating and you, you, need to, you need to follow what's happening. Uh, and if you don't, uh, I think you, you risk being left behind. So, But the two, the two go hand in hand. If you're passionate about a subject, that will lead you to making sure that you stay informed and engaged in the area. So where you can do that at a local level, where, where you live and you know, form groups and clubs and help locally in terms of you know, small-scale sustainability, which leads to large-scale results ultimately, but also through um, because you're all, in, you know, uh, intelligent, empowered people, you'll make a difference uh, in the in the financial world. Uh, and that's uh, as important, if not more so, because you're in that privileged position of having studied here at Imperial and making a difference in, in the financial community once you leave. Absolutely. Well, on that 
bombshell. And <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess we should conclude. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your insights. It's been great. To Not hear. at all. You're very welcome, and uh, good luck. Thank you. <laughs>